In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I guess that every profession has its own version of internal discussions and conversations with uh, various parties and various people getting upset about things and ranting and raving about this or that. It may not surprise you that the church is no exception. And so over the past few days, especially as the world has been able to watch Pope Francis, as we've watched him lead several different liturgies and celebrate masses and attend other events, you can perhaps imagine the conversation. Or if you're on social media, maybe you've uh, partaken in it yourself or seen it. Especially among Episcopalians. The liturgists have worried themselves to death why the Pope didn't properly genuflect when he entered the Mary Chapel at St. Patrick's Cathedral. The vestment makers have wondered why he was wearing the things he was wearing. And perhaps not the things made by them. And then the musicians have wondered why, with some of the strongest and most talented voices on the globe, churches have insisted on having a cantor sing way too loudly directly into a microphone. Well, each observation, each question, each comment, really, at its basic level, is some variation on a phrase we all know, they're not doing it right. (laughs) Which really is to say, they're not doing it my way. Maybe that's human nature. Maybe there's something inside each one of us that causes a little bit of resentment whenever we see someone doing things differently. Not because they necessarily affect us in any way, They don't improve or diminish anything about our situation. But what they're doing is different. And different is not quite right. In today's scripture readings, there's a lot of squabbling. And in places it has to do with this very thing. With someone noticing that somebody else is doing things differently. It can all sound kind of childish when we read it in Scripture until we begin to notice how familiar the voices and the sentiments are. At the beginning of today's Gospel, the Gospel we just heard, the disciples are all upset. They're upset about other disciples. It seems that these other disciples, other followers of Jesus are casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and yet something about the way they're casting out is not quite up to snuff. (laughs) They're not a part of this inner group that involves John and perhaps the other disciples we know. And so the disciples are eager to point this out to Jesus. They want Jesus to join them in criticizing and condemning the others, in, in sharing their outrage. Notice that Jesus doesn't go for it. Jesus doesn't fall for the bait of the disciples. This temptation to divide the good from the bad, the orthodox from the unorthodox, those who cast out demons correctly from those who do it in some other way. 
Instead, Jesus says very clearly, do not stop them. Do not stop them. Whoever is not against us is for us. Even if they do things a little differently, even if they do things strangely, they're doing no harm. And so don't worry so much about them. Well, then the disciples are probably a little sorry they brought all this up because Jesus begins to preach and he gets personal fast. He looks at the disciples and says, it's your own life that you need to pay attention to. Jesus says, don't look across the street, look in the mirror. What is it in your life that causes you to sin? Take care of your own business before trying to solve everybody else's. We hear a similar situation in our first reading. That similar situation in the community around Moses. At this point, Moses is overwhelmed by all that's before him. And so he complains to God about it. And God suggests that Moses ask for help. And so Moses asks for help and he gets it and he appoints 70 elders to serve as leaders. But then things get even more challenging Squabbles break out. You heard it a few minutes ago. Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. (laughs) The young man comes to Moses with this news. And then Joshua, standing by, a little like John in the New Testament, Joshua takes up the anxiety and agrees that this is a real problem. And so he pulls Moses aside. My Lord Moses, stop them. Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? I would love that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on everybody. This problem of overlooking one's own problems or issues and starting to worry about everybody else is not confined to the time of Moses or the time of Jesus. It's not just in our community. It's all over. Perhaps this week we could see it especially clear in the Roman Catholic Church. After all, there are those who have spent their lives a little like the the elder brother in the prodigal son story. They followed all the rules. They've lived their life by the law. Things were laid out very clearly. Neat categories of black and white, good and evil Those who are allowed to receive communion and those who are not. These folks know exactly who's in and who's out, who they're for and who they're against. And they want Pope Francis to agree with them. He does anything but. In his address to Congress on Thursday, Francis put it very clearly. He said, there is a temptation which we must especially guard against. The simplistic reductionism, which sees only good or evil, or if you will, the righteous and sinners. The contemporary world with its open wounds, which affects so many of our brothers and sisters, demands that we confront every form of polarization which would divide the world into these two camps. We know that in the attempt to be freed of the enemy without we can be tempted to feed the enemy within. I love that last quotation. 
We know that in the attempt to be freed of the enemy without, we can be tempted to feed the enemy within. This happens everywhere in most local churches. There inevitably comes a time when one group begins to feel that another group is getting all the attention. This other group is getting all the money or they're getting all the volunteers. More often than not, if the group complaining simply focused a little more on its own tasks, then its visibility would increase. If they got a budget request in on time, if volunteers would be attracted by their energy and their fun and their mission. As a Christian, it's easy for me to look around and notice how so many others don't get it quite right. We can worry about what the Baptists are saying or what the Roman Catholics are doing or what our sisters and brothers might be doing or not doing up the hill at the cathedral. My fellow Christians on the far left annoy me just as much as my fellow Christians on the right. But I have the same amount of control over all of them, which is none. When I'm at my most healthy, my most faithful, I can begin to remember a little bit of what's in today's gospel. Or I can begin to think a little bit like Pope Francis. And I'll begin to worry less about what everybody else is doing and look at what I'm doing or not doing. Are we reaching out as much as we should from all souls? Are we including everyone? Are we paying attention to our neighbors? Are we serving the poor and the neglected? Are we giving our time, our money, our talent to God sacrificially? Am I saying my prayers? Am I reaching out? Today's gospel ends with Jesus giving us a vision of the day of judgment. It's not a very cheery image. It's the kind of scene that the church and artists have envisioned as being one ultimate grand experience that happens at the end of our earthly life. But I don't think judgment works that way. I don't think Jesus means it that way at all. I think instead opportunities for judgment happen daily. Every time we face temptations to avoid being faithful, every time we look away from someone in need, every time we make one of those little decisions not to follow Christ. Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire. And I think what he means by that, partly at least, is that we come face to face, heart to heart, with truth. And we're asked to respond. Salt is good, Jesus says. And perhaps whatever it is that makes us salty has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that gives us that flame of truth that burns within each one of us. If salt has lost its saltness, Jesus says, how can it be restored? And so have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. As I read these baffling words about saltiness and a connection between our being salty and also being at peace with others, I wonder if Jesus doesn't have in his mind at some level an image from his own world, a geographical and physical and actual image. 
Some of you have been there and know that in Israel, about 65 miles south of Galilee, Galilee where Jesus spent most of his life, about 65 miles south is the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. It was there in Jesus' day. He surely would have known about it. In the Dead Sea, the water there is 34% saline. There are no animals, there are no plants, but the salt is strong. It's strong as fire. If you have a little cut on your skin and you put it in the water, you find out how strong it is. It burns like crazy, but it also heals. People go swimming there today. There are spas and hotels all around it. King David liked to visit the Salt Sea. King Herod the Great built perhaps the first spa there. Many think that John the Baptist was related to the community of Essenes there who lived in the the hill caves all around the Dead Sea. People continue to go. This so-called Dead Sea gives life to people with its curative powers. I wonder if Jesus had this in mind at some level when he talks about being salty If one goes to the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and has respiratory problems, one benefits from the air because there's this odd condition that's created from the salt content of the water when it hits the atmosphere. Skin conditions like psoriasis are helped by this combination of cloud and sun and minerals. Arthritis is helped by the mud from the area. And often if you see photographs of people who visited, they're caked in this mud this mud with healing properties, with this combination of magnesium and bromide and sodium. Who knows if Jesus was thinking of the salt sea when he suggested that the disciples then and now, when he suggests that us, that we be like salt and be at peace. It's an image that can work for us if we Imagine how people go to that water for healing. They usually go together. The water is so thick that one is sort of buoyed up. You can't sink. I wonder if this isn't an image for the church, a place where no matter how deep the water gets, no one sinks because everybody reaches out a hand to care, to heal, to help. And yet there is mystery and creation around us. When we get together, like dipping into the salt sea, there are healing properties that are beyond us that carry us into a new place of help and healing and life. Whether we might take a dip in the salt sea one day or whether we stay right where we are, may God keep us salty and help us to offer healing to one another and the world May we learn not to be bothered so much by the seasoning of others, but to have salt in ourselves in our own way to God's glory as we follow Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.